This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 148, Anatomy, Alignment, in Technique, in Asana. Are you curious and inquisitive about your body? If you'd love to know more how it works and eventually have a sense of self-mastery, today's episode is for you. And if you are a yoga teacher, buckle up. Our guest is a great teacher's teacher. For this episode, I sat down with Matt Giordano. Matt is the creator and founder of the Chromatic Yoga School, offering immersions, 200 and 300 hour teacher trainings online to support student teachers from around the world. His signature technique-based style of yoga educates students on how their body works and it guides them deeply into postures with a refined attention to details and precise action cues. He's known as an adept guide for students of all level at festivals, workshop, and in his weekly studio classes using biomechanics and integrative mind-body technique to inform his teachings. So I thought he would be the perfect guest to talk about anatomy, alignment, and technique, which is something you guys have been requesting on Instagram in my DMs. So here we go. I would really love to read your takeaways on today's episode. So as you listen, take a screenshot of the episode and share one of your takeaways on Instagram tagging at on and off your mat podcast. I will, of course, reshare you, but everybody will be able to read your takeaways and we can go deeper into the content of each episode together and learn as a community. All right, let's get to today's episode. So with Matt. Hi, Matt. Hello, hello. Good morning. Thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Mm, such a pleasure. So Matt, for listeners that don't know you very well, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your yoga journey? Yeah, for sure. Um, so for all intensive purposes, I am a yoga instructor of instructors. So I teach teacher trainings and certainly teach yoga immersions and, and all of that. And mm-hmm. Um, I started off my yoga practice uh, in Long Island where I grew up with my stepmother and quickly moved to teaching just because I was really passionate about the practice and my friends were curious about it. So they wanted to learn, but they you know didn't want to go to yoga studios. So I started teaching them and that kind of just one thing led to another and I began teaching classes all over Long Island until I wound up in New York City, which then eventually brought me outward to travel teaching around the world, which then eventually brought me to teaching online today. So <laughs> that's my a, a brief yoga journey. And uh, I currently live in Connecticut and I live on a farm. I have farm animals for pets and uh, <laughs> grow food. And I'm passionate about the outdoors and hiking and things like that. That's me in a nutshell, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. The way you teach is a very step-by-step style, like a breaking it down into smaller pieces. Why were you drawn to this type of teaching or what is the purpose or the benefits of this in your opinion? For sure. I think it was first set up by my classes with my stepmother and how she taught yoga was also an approach of action by action, muscle engagements. But largely I was drawn to it because I was very out of touch with my body at the time. Mm. I didn't really know how it operated or how to operate it for that matter. And it seemed almost like a foreign object. And so for me, I had to really, you know, as a young adult at that time, I had to really learn the mechanics of it and the way things moved. And growing up as a kid, as probably most kids do, I never really paid attention to my body or how it worked or how to, you know, use it. I didn't do anything like dance or, you know, gymnastics or something where you it's really like something would have we to take do. for granted. We're like, it's yeah, just... it's just this thing that I, I am. Yeah. 
I, I did play like ice hockey, which only, uh, you know, I love ice hockey, but it certainly was probably not great for my body growing up. But at a certain point, I realized that I had a lot of aches and pains. My low back was very, very uncomfortable. I don't know if I had any official injuries or anything like that. I could have for all I knew, but I had really contemplated like going to seek surgery for it because I, most days I would have to lay down for at least an hour in the middle of the day just to get my back to feel okay. And I was like 21 years old. Yeah. You're you know, too young for that. Happening. Yeah, exactly. And I had a lot of right knee pain and I also broke my shoulder in several locations. And so my left shoulder had a lot of pain. So like before I even started the yoga practice, I was like, you know, an old person with my body. I had the left shoulder, the right knee, the back, and unbeknownst to me, my right hip as well. Eventually, when I came to the yoga practice, I started, I loved the practice immediately. There was like this sort of resonance with it. I mean, first warrior two, I was hooked and I loved the feeling of it, but down dog hurt my left shoulder like crazy. Pigeon pose hurt my right knee like crazy. Any forward fold was uncomfortable in my low back. So I had to seek if I wanted to continue practicing this thing that made me feel great emotionally and energetically, I had to seek out ways of making it work for me physically. And so that began my curiosity to learn. And I just started opening anatomy books at that time. You know, Google searching wasn't necessarily that popular yet, but opening anatomy books and trying to learn about the knee joint and learn about the spinal joints and learn about the shoulder girdle and that information that I was gaining from just that curiosity to try to feel better physically speaking, eventually transferred into my yoga practice. And that began kind of a way in which I teach now, uh, kind of that step-by-step approach that you mentioned, where I try to support people the best way I can with simplicity so that it's not this big mysterious body, but if we can somehow isolate one area of the body and work on one action or one movement with one muscle group at a time, you can really learn a sense of mastery of that one area. And then you never really forget it. Once you've really mastered some aspect of your body or anything in life, there's this memory. That's why they say it's like riding a bike because you've mastered it when you were a kid. And then if you haven't rode a bike for 20 years and you get on Mm -hmm. one, yeah, there's going to be some shaky wobbliness, but you get right back into it. And that's kind of how the body works. If you don't really master something though, like if you don't really go into the movements and feel the sensations of how to activate the muscle, if you don't get dialed into that one area, you will always kind of forget and have to go back and have to go back and remember. And that's same thing if you're learning any skill set like music or art. If you just kind of do a little bit, mm-hmm. you'll forget it. You'll have to do it again. But if you really go deeply into it, there's a sense of permanence that happens that you can always come back to it. And that's how I approach teaching about physical body. I don't want to necessarily claim that I made that approach up. So that came from a book called Effortless Mastery, which is for musicians, specifically by a piano player named Kenny Warner. And his approach to mastery is what I sort of adopted from my studies into my teaching of yoga and practice of yoga. Mm -hmm. So what I hear, it's a way of self-embodiment, like understanding, reconnecting to ourselves and eventually a path of self-mastery. How do we use the practice with that in mind? Like if our mind is to build self-awareness, to build self-inquiry, to build embodiment and self-mastery, how do we approach it as a student 
whether the teacher is leading us that way or not. So I think a lot of people will get confused when we talk about the physical body, that that's not awareness. And I think the easiest way to gain a perspective on how to practice quote unquote yoga as it has been laid out to us is to look at the body in the layers. Think about the koshas as far as some lineages of yoga or tantra has its own layered system of what it means to be a human. But let's look at the koshas for a second because I think that's probably more well-known model for the self. And at the outermost layer, according to the koshas, we have this physical form. And there's nothing in the koshas that says any one layer of our being is better than another. Mm-hmm. Or more and important. I think, yeah, or more important. I think what happens in yoga practice is that if you're an intellectual kind of human, which I am, um, we start to value the mind over the body to a certain degree in our study because we think that perhaps self-advancement or development or awareness or inquiry really has to do with just the mental aspects of things. And that's just one layer of our being. The physical layer, we have the energetic layer called prana. We have the manamaya kosha mental layer, which includes, a lot of people think mind is just thoughts, but that's emotional body and mental body. Those are the same layer. Mm -hmm. And then you've, of course, you have awareness and bliss as two other layers. You got these five layers of our being according to the koshas, right? And awareness permeates all layers is the teaching of Tantra, at least. And that's the lineage where I really study, but awareness permeates all layers. So where you are unaware in your experience of life or in these layers is what is most important at that time to develop inquiry. So for me in my early twenties, like physical was something that I was very unaware of. And the body was telling me that screaming at me that, you know, your knee, your back, your shoulder. It wanted are, you to listen, obviously. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Inquire, <laughs> get to know mm-hmm. this area. And so to get back to your question, I think every layer of our being has room for inquiry and questioning and further awareness. Mm-hmm. It's not that, you know, the study of mechanics of your body, of how your shoulder works is making you less aware just because there's thought in it. And I think that's something that people get a little confused as mm. well. If I have to think about it, like if I have to do take action by action, that that means I'm not in awareness because there's an association with a feeling when it comes to awareness, which is not necessarily the case. That's all actually on the mental layer. That's all on the manamaya kosha where that feeling and thinking are all one layer. And that's helpful in the process of inquiry, right? Because it starts, I think, inquiry. Most of us aren't in touch with our bliss layer or <laughs> our awareness layer or the witness, right? When we start practicing, I, you know, I'm not necessarily going to speak for everybody, but most of us are not. Mm-hmm. The practice helps us develop that. So using the mind as a way to develop an understanding of this body, I think is a really great skill. That's, you know, the intellect, the buddhi, as they call it in the sutras, is the intellect is able to discern the difference between this muscle and this muscle, this action and this action. And you're strengthening the buddhi or the intellect on the physical layer or level, which then gives rise to a sense of awareness or body awareness, awareness of this physical form that you are living in. And if we don't do that in this lifetime of having this physical body with this limited time, I think we've missed a massive opportunity as a human being. You only have this physical experience for a certain period of time. So when you're in class, 
to ignore the physical body, which, you know, my judgment of some practitioners will ignore the physical body because they're trying to get some other experience beyond physical, which I think is great. But if you ignore the physical body all the time, because you're thinking that you're overvaluing, say, something spiritual, something mental, something emotional, then you've missed the fullness of what it means to be a human. And the gift of, I think, mm. what this yoga practice is trying to offer us is awareness of the full spectrum of who we are, not just one aspect. Same is true, I think, we all probably, if you're listening to this podcast based on the title and the topic, I think we all know that if you're only focused on the physical aspects, you've missed the other four aspects of being a human. Mm -hmm. But just knowing who I'm probably talking to, we also want to remember the beauty of being in this physical form and cultivating awareness of that. Yes, certainly can mean, it doesn't have to mean, uh, studying anatomy so that you understand what's happening inside of you. Because when you look at a muscle on a page, you can suddenly start to visualize that inside. And when you visualize that inside, you gain a sensational connection to that muscle group. Maybe it's not exact, like the way that it looks on the page, the way that you sensationally or kind of map it internally or mm -hmm. mentally, but there's a deeper connection and ability to activate that muscle group. And then a sensation follows. When you have the visualization and a sensation following, it will affect your mental and emotional body. You will experience something profound and quite deep. That's not to say all of your yoga practices have to be focused on sensationally feeling your muscular system or how your body moves. But I think when you're practicing asana, that's the purpose of it. If you're really looking for an energetic experience, that's why there's pranayama, breath work. And if you're looking for a mental clarity moment or emotional experience, then you work on the manamaya kosha. That would be meditation. Not to say mm -hmm. that any of these three practices, asana, pranayama, and meditation are isolated to each of those koshas, but at the same time, those are what's most effective for each of them. And of course, affecting any layer affects all layers. Yeah, absolutely. So you just described why it's important to learn anatomy, which is interesting. You said we understand what is happening inside of us. So we have a better sense of connection with those muscles and we can activate them better. So when we are on the mat, we can move the body in a way that we are trying to achieve. Mm. What in contrast is alignment and why does that matter? I don't necessarily use the word alignment too much. I do. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as important as technique or mm -hmm. biomechanics. These are different words. Alignment implies that there are ways in which we hold our bones and joints. And then I would think that this word in the yoga world contains a deeper meaning that is not necessarily in the word, uh, mm -hmm. but has been applied to the word that there is a right and wrong way to do a, an asana, that there's an incorrect and correct way of going about each of the poses. And that's in accordance to whatever my teacher, teachers, teachers, teachers said. And that's the way in which, you know, the divine way in which you have to practice <laughs> asana. To me, I, you know, that, that, is a, a whole bunch of nonsense. And there's a lot of ego wrapped up in each of those alignment things. And everybody's got their own thing, you know, from, from their lineage of their teachers or whatever. I always look at humanity and how we wrap our own identity and wrap our own belief systems into something and then project it onto a system and then say, this is the right and wrong way. So alignment to me has that all wrapped into it. 
I prefer, and the, you know, I, I created a school of yoga called chromatic yoga, which is very much based on this one foundational understanding is that there is not necessarily a right and wrong way of doing a pose. There are benefits and drawbacks to every alignment that is chosen. Mm -hmm. And some of those drawbacks might be, you know, injury. And so therefore you may choose not to do a pose that way with that particular set of alignment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's incorrect. It just has certain drawbacks, like such as you know, doing a backflip has a high risk of injury of your head and neck. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do a backflip. It just means it's high risk and you may choose not to do that. Especially um, with or, your body in a certain time and space, you know, like yeah, it's, it yeah, might be for great sure. for your neighbor and not great for you right now. Yeah. Or you might make your entire living of doing backflips on ice skates, whatever that guy was in the 90s. And do you know, I don't know if you remember that guy. He yeah, but I can't think of like, his name right now. <laughs> yeah. But like, For him, I mean, his entire legacy is on doing backflips on ice skates. So I would think to tell that guy that backflips are wrong because it's highly injurious is a really stupid idea of us because we don't really understand mm -hmm. his life's experience and what his path is and so on and so forth. So to say that there's a right and a wrong alignment, I think is really, you know, and I hope I'm not stepping on any toes, but just for me, from my perspective is rudimentary. I think it's a great way to start as a yoga teacher when you're just learning, you need to understand some basics so mm -hmm. that you're not just like, you know, throwing people into a highly injurious situation where you are then at fault all the time. So there's nothing wrong with learning right and wrong based on, you know, injury or whatever it might be. But if you think that that's the end of the human experience, that warrior two ends with your arms that shoulder level and you know like right your and heel left aligned and with the middle the of your route. arch yeah. exactly your right <laughs> knee has to be over the heel and like uh, if you if you think that's where warrior two ends i think we've missed the boat mm, on what it means mm -hmm. to be a human so for me and to move yes exactly to move and just to be a there's physical... so much more freedom in the body than like placing yourself in this like pattern be like this is it this is how i'm allowed to move this body right and at the same time you know like to just to counteract mine and your argument here we also there's nothing wrong with picking an alignment and saying this is what my intent is for today and i'm going to try to do my best to find it and if i find that this is a challenging alignment for me maybe it means i need to practice this is where i have lack of awareness so it's not that i despise alignment altogether. I just think that there are several alignments that are available within one given posture. And that's where I come up with this word technique, which I mm -hmm. use in Kvata Yoga, you know, as the foundation. It's a technique style practice where you learn that you can place your body in this alignment and then you can actually engage your muscles in a myriad of ways. So you can be in warrior two with your, you know, with a short stance and you can learn to activate your adductors. Those are the inner thighs, your abductors, outer hips, your glute muscles, your deep buttock muscles, the back of your pelvis, the hip flexors. You can focus on one of those muscle groups, two of those muscle groups, try to focus on all of those muscle groups mm -hmm. in any given alignment. Then you can change it, take a wider stance, take your back foot forward a little bit towards the, you know, inside of the mat, take it back a little bit. You could turn the back thigh bone in, you could turn it out, whatever. There's so many variable alignments within one thing that if you apply muscle engagement, then it becomes what I call technique, where you have alignment plus mm -hmm. muscle engagements and timing, I should say. Technique is a lot about timing because sometimes you can engage certain muscles in the wrong order or whatever in a way in which doesn't produce the result 
you're looking for. That's better than saying in the wrong order, but in a way that doesn't produce the result you're looking for. But if you engage your muscles one by one in a different order, then suddenly there's a production of an action. Yeah, exactly. That you might be looking for. So Mm -hmm. timing and order is part of technique and just recognizing the what actions you're doing create what results and then asking yourself, did I intend for that result or did I intend, you know, for that outcome? And if not, then maybe I change the order or I change the actions. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that's how I teach a lot as well, because then it allows you to create that step-by-step, right? Like then you can choose and have a sense of creativity in the poses that we teach a hundred times a week into like, what am I trying to do within this whole either class or a week or month long of, you know, whatever you're teaching right now. And you can kind of play with the pose and play with the technique and the timing of things to get a particular result. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So let's talk technique then. Let's start with like the shoulder. I know you talk a lot about the shoulder. You talked about downward dog before. What are some technique principles that our teachers that are listeners or students that are listeners can think about? Like maybe one principle that you find we should talk about more in TT. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Around the the shoulders in general, I think. So the basic understanding of the shoulders is that you've got three bones that make up the shoulders. You've got your collarbone, your arm bone, and your shoulder blade. And I think at the foundational level, we miss one thing, and that is that these move together as a unit. or they're intended like the rest of the body to move as a unit. And what happens along the way in life is that we actually form patterns for which we utilize, you know, part of what it means to be human is trying to find the utmost amount of efficiency. And so what happens in also finding efficiency is we do the least amount of effort possible to get the action done. So even though the collarbone, the shoulder blade, and the arm bone should move as a unit, and that's kind of how they're designed to move, we're also designed to find the path of least resistance so that we have the greatest energy bank. So if we have to use yeah, it, we have energy conservation for survival. <laughs> exactly. So if we go to reach up for a cup, and you're utilizing the least amount of energy, you will probably only use just one or two muscles. Yes. Mm -hmm. And your shoulder won't move. So your collarbone and your shoulder blade will kind of hang out there. And we train that over and over again. And what happens over time is the collarbone, the muscles that move the collarbone and the shoulder blade kind of become, for lack of a better word, dumb. They just become sort of turned off. Yeah. Yeah. They they Mm -hmm. sleep, they go to sleep. Doesn't mean they can't wake up, but they're, they're, they're in a coma. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> and what we can do as yoga teachers is, and this is, you know, a technique that I teach at the foundational level, which, well, I think it's foundational. It's usually taught to yoga teachers though. So, and that is just wherever the arm goes or however the arm moves, the shoulders, including collarbone and, and shoulder blade move with it. Or at first to repattern, I initiate the movement from the collarbone and the shoulder blade. And then the arm follows, which is the opposite of what most of us do. So for example, if Mm -hmm. I was going to reach my hand up, instead of waiting for my collarbone and my shoulder blade to move, I would actually start by moving the shoulder blade and collarbone. That's not the end result. You eventually want to be able to move the arm bone and then the collarbone and shoulder blade follow at the right timing so that there's lack of the least amount of resistance in the shoulder, the glenohumeral joint as it's called, which is where the arm bone meets the shoulder socket. But 
a way to kind of pattern ourselves or unwind patterns is to do the opposite of what we always do. You know, that's mm-hmm. one thing that's kind of healing in life is just do the thing, you know, that is opposing. You're not accustomed. Mm-hmm. Yes. So something that all teachers can do, whether it's on, you know, for, let me give one clear example. If you were to do um, the backstroke with one arm, what you could do is try to move your shoulder blade and collarbone before the arm moves. So if you're going to reach forward, you want the shoulder blade and collarbone to push forward, and then the hand can reach forward as a result. Then if you're going to go up, instead of the hand moving first, you can lift the shoulder, which is the shoulder blade and collarbone first, and then move the hand. Now, as your hand goes back in the backstroke, you can, instead of taking your hand back first, you can move your armpit and shoulder blade and collarbone back, and then follow it with the hand. Then as your hand is going to go down in the circle, you can pull your shoulder blade and collarbone down, and then your hand follows. So the normal way of doing that is you would take just a backstroke with your hand and your collarbone and shoulder blade would follow the arm bone. Now, if you're lucky, that pattern is still there and the collarbone and shoulder blade will follow the arm Mm -hmm. appropriately. And I should just explain that this is called scapulohumeral rhythm. You can look that up, scapulohumeral rhythm, very popular in physical therapy world to help people heal their shoulder injuries. Mm -hmm. And the idea is wherever the humerus and scapula move together in a rhythm, collarbone as well. And if your arm goes forward, but your shoulder retracts, so if your hand goes forward and your shoulder blade comes towards the spine, that creates potential friction in the joint. It doesn't mean it's wrong or it's going to you know, hurt you right away, but repetitive action of that, such as going to plank pose and melting your heart with your shoulder blades together, the repetitive action of that trains the opposing pattern or rhythm. I like doing opposing rhythms and patterns. Don't get me wrong. They're Um, useful too. Mm -hmm. Yes. But we just try to get the the one foundational thing first, and then you can deviate off of that, in my opinion. So the first thing would be whenever your arm is in front, your shoulder blade should be protracting, moving away from the spine. Whenever your arms are behind, shoulder blades retracted, moving towards the spine. Whenever your arms are up overhead, shoulder blades elevating or what's called upwardly rotating. So the shoulders lift as the arms are lifted. Whenever your arms are down by your sides, shoulders pull down. And what happens in most yoga classes and fitness industry and dance and whatever, they do the opposite. So like if your arms are up, you pull the shoulders down, you know, or if you're in an arm balance, I was always taught to like melt my heart, to move the shoulder blades together in an arm balance, which is the exact opposite of what the body wants necessarily. I think it's great. That's a very advanced skill to be able to retract and protract. Like I said, technique is something that there's no right and wrong, but first learn what the body's designed to do when the arms are in front the body's design that the shoulder blades are apart. And we know that because they move together before we're told not to do it. And you can see it in kids. If you threw a baseball or you threw a punch, your shoulder blade would separate away from the spine naturally as the arm goes forward without you thinking about it. Unless someone told you to do the opposite, which happens in alignment. (laughs) Someone Mm -hmm. tells you to do the opposite or an aesthetic such as like ballet, you know, with the arms overhead, that's an aesthetic, pull the the shoulders down as a result. The long neck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. To keep the neck long and so on. So there's aesthetic reasons. And then there's like these alignment reasons or whatever. Just first move the arm and the shoulder blade together. Then you can make decisions to, you know, if you want to pull the shoulders down a little bit or whatever. Yeah. And just, I would suggest that you understand the before asking students say to pull your shoulders down when your arms are up, understand what the risk is in that. And then ask yourself if you want to do that or not. And why, why are you asking them to do that? Is it for aesthetic? Is it like, why, 
What's the point? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think most people would say that it's to relax the neck muscles because there's tension there. And I would just encourage you to understand that tension in the neck muscles is not a result of strong trapezius muscles. In fact, most people that have tension in the neck don't have strong trapezius muscles. You know that because those people are probably not doing things. I know most humans aren't doing things that would actually engage these muscles and develop strength. So if somebody had, let me put it this way, if somebody had a like neck upper trapezius tension as a result of doing too many handstands, doing a, a tremendous amount of weight pressing up overhead, then you know that that discomfort is from overly strengthened muscles. But most people sit at their computer all day and then they go to yoga and they pull their shoulders down. They take their arms out to the sides, their shoulders are down. They don't even lift their shoulder when they lift up for a cup. And yet there's tension in the muscle. That tension is neurological or mental or emotional or however you want to look at it. And it doesn't mean that that muscle is strong and healthy. It's actually probably unhealthy. And the more that Mm -hmm. we don't engage it, the more that we don't attend to its appropriate neuromuscular kind of participation, Mm -hmm. the more it becomes asleep and cranky because a muscle is designed to engage. If you Mm -hmm. don't engage it, then it becomes tense. So you have to learn to engage and release, engage and release. Those are the two actions you can do with the muscle. If you're only doing the non-engagement part, the release, then you will have muscle tension in anywhere in the body, including the trapezius muscles. But if it happens to also correlate with where you hold your, you know, stress and whatnot, but just remember that those are different things that your stress response is resulting in a physical thing. That doesn't mean that that muscle is strong and healthy. So develop strength and health of that muscle, regardless of where you hold your tension. I bet you're you're going to find out that whether that's in your back or your hips or your shoulders, if you engage those muscles and learn to deliberately release and engage, release and engage appropriately, I think that you'll find that you hold less mental and emotional stress in that area because you're aware of it during your daily life that, oh, now that you know what this muscle feels like, you can catch it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. That was great. So I think we have a lot of good things to think about when it comes to the shoulder. What's one technique thing we consider when we want to improve our hips or hamstring flexibly? I'm going to kind of put it in together. So you decide where you want to go. Cause I find they, you know, work together. Hip and hamstring well. flexibility. Yeah. Um, I think the same answer is, is true. You want to learn to engage the muscles that surround the hips or if it's just the hamstrings, the hamstrings as well. But the hamstrings are very tied to your pelvic mobility, which Mm -hmm. means all of your hip muscles must be strong and able to release tension and such. So the basic idea here is engage and disengage the muscle you're attempting to, or muscle groups that you're attempting to develop health of. I, I just look at it as range of motion. So your hamstrings will become more flexible if you strengthen them through range of motion. So for example, if you just go to the gym and you do that exercise where you put your heels on the, the curl, the, mm-hmm. yeah, you do the, the hamstring curls. That's great. I think that's a, a really excellent way to strengthen the hamstring in a very limited range of motion because your pelvis or your hips are only at one angle. Whereas the hamstrings, if you did that in hip, deep hip flexion, like a forward fold or in a back bend, then you're getting the full range of the hamstrings. This is where studying a little bit of anatomy helps. When you understand that the hamstrings are attached to your sit bones and your sit bones are your pelvis, then you understand that the movement of your pelvis affects the length of your hamstrings. So knowing where a muscle attaches, even if you don't know the name of the bone, like, you know, ischial tuberosity or whatever, you don't need to know that. You just need to understand that my hamstrings actually 
attached it's relationship to, to the pelvis. joint. Yes. yes. And so if I bow forward, that pulls the hamstrings upward or towards the pelvis that's bowing forward and lengthens the hamstrings. You know that kind of sensationally, right? But if you understand that on an intellectual level, then you can design little exercises for yourself to take the pelvis through range of motion while also engaging the hamstrings and so on. So it, it's not something I can say like, here's one you know key exercise. Mm-hmm. To- no, but I think that's super yeah. interesting because oftentimes in yoga, we tend to stretch the hip more than strengthen the hip. There's kind of an imbalance there. So to keep in mind that you can strengthen your hip and strengthen your hip within your range of motion, that will then affect your flexibility in the end and your strength and your, like it's all together, right? In that mobility kind of bigger basket, let's say, but to consider that. And then when you play with your alignment, when you play with other things and you're like, oh, I can engage my leg in this way as I go into pigeon pose or as I go into these standing hip openers or whichever, you know, pose you choose. I think just that awareness, just that thought of like engage and release to then not only be passive in your poses makes a huge difference. Yeah. I think it's really good to just look at the muscular system, kind of like the digestive system. You put something in and then you put something out. That's how the digestive system works, right? Mm -hmm. To have a healthy digestive system, you put quality food in and then it goes out. Imagine if one of those things wasn't working. So if you never put food in, eventually you never have something to go out, right? Or if you only put food in and nothing comes out, you're going to explode, right? You can see the very simple. It makes sense there, right? Muscular systems the same way. If you only stretch, but you don't engage, those have to go hand in hand. Length and engagement, or better put, engagement and disengagement. If you only engage, which would be just, you know, shortening the muscle, shortening the muscle, shortening the muscle, you're going to have massive problems in that muscle or probably more than that muscle, the area of the Mm -hmm. body. And if you only stretch and stretch and stretch, you're also going to have massive, massive problems. So you need both sides. You cannot value stretching or strengthening over one another. The only way I would say you value one over the other is if you're only doing one side, then you must value the opposite side for a while until you get yourself back into balance. I would encourage you to really look at that in a serious manner that you have to strengthen the muscles that you're stretching. It's not enough to do, say, warrior two and then a hamstring stretch because warrior two is actually just a quad engagement. It would be better to do warrior two and then a quad stretch. Those would be- Better paired. uh, Yes, exactly. That would be a better pairing. Because we are on a sticky mat, uh, most of the yoga postures don't allow us or don't require us to engage our inner thigh muscles and our hamstring muscles. So you have to find ways of deliberately engaging those muscles. If you want, you can go on an ice skating rink with no ice skates and do the yoga postures and you'll learn how to activate your hamstrings and your inner yeah. thighs because otherwise yeah. you would slip out, right? So or you do it on your hand. wooden floor with a yoga blanket instead of a sticky yeah. mat or socks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a whole immersion on, uh, on socks called vinyasa and everything we do is on socks. So you learn how to hold your body without the sticky mat and that really trains the appropriate muscles that would need to turn on otherwise. And then your hamstrings really gain flexibility because now you're engaging them through movement and through mm-hmm. length and, and whatnot. I love that. All right, let's do one last one. Any technique, one thing you want to say about the spine when we try to backbend and create a little bit more space if we feel compression in our spine and discomfort? 
Yeah. Okay. You, you, I think you've done a little bit of research on what I have to share. Sounds like, okay. So, um, I know you, what, <laughs> you don't know me, but I know you <laughs> <laughs> with the spine. You're trying to pull out my opinionated uh, side. So, <laughs> I am. <laughs> if you are intending to do extension of the spine, which is a backbend, then the first step is to learn how to extend the spine. And that sounds very redundant, but what most people do when approaching an extended spine or a backbend is they would tuck the tailbone, engage their abdomen, which by the way, those two actions are flexing the spine. So if you start learning backbends by flexing the spine, then what you're going to have is a lot of trouble in other areas. So like, let's say you're going to do full wheel. You tuck your tailbone and activate your abdomen. It's going to be very hard to rise up and you're going to feel like my wrist, my shoulders, my legs are too weak. And that's because you're forcing flexion into the spine and then expecting that the shoulders and the hips are going to be able to compensate for that and still achieve a shape. So it's kind of counterproductive. Now, I want to remind you of my statement earlier that there's nothing wrong with the engagement of the abdominals in a backbend. I would just consider it to be more advanced if you know how to engage the abdominal muscles while lengthened. So most people don't know how to engage the abdominal muscles, specifically speaking of the rectus abdominis and the external obliques. These muscles tend to be muscles that we only learn to engage while being short, like crunches and sit-ups, yeah. mm -hmm. everything. Whereas most people don't learn how to engage them in a lengthened position. So therefore, when you go to do it, you get on your back, you start your full wheel and you say, okay, activate my core muscles, tuck my tailbone. You are probably in a crunched position and you're, what that means, I should just lay it out for you, is that you're flexed in your spine, which means the front of your spine is now short. A lot of people will say, tuck your tail to lengthen the spine. That actually shortens the front of the spine. The back certainly has length if you look at it, but the spine hasn't actually changed. I should be real with you. And the spine is the same length. You've just shortened the front side, lengthened the back side. But overall, if you measure, it's going to be pretty much the same distance. It's not like you're pulling your spine apart in that, mm -hmm, in that action. Mm -hmm. You're just no bending traction. one side. Yeah, it's not traction. It's just bending one side shorter and the other side will appear to be lengthened from the outside. So if you flex the spine, if you do a forward fold, essentially is what you're doing by tucking the tailbone and rounding or engaging your abdomen. And then, so now we have the shortened front side and then you start to lift up and you use your back muscles to try to lift up. Now you have a shortened backside. So you have a shortened front of the spine and a shortened back of the spine. That is what we call compression. That means if you're engaging the muscles of both sides equally, then the only way for the spine to go is into itself, where each vertebra kind of smush into the discs. And that's a nice recipe for a disc injury or, you know, just ultimately, if you're lucky, not a disc injury, but just lack of movement, lack of available, because you're just literally doing the opposite of what you're trying to do. Not to say that that's, again, wrong, but it's very advanced to learn the development of how much engagement of the abs and what alignment within that engagement, that's what technique includes, alignment plus mm -hmm. engagement and plus timing. Mm -hmm. So my suggestion would be get to a backbend first, get into your mobility, and then start to engage the abs when you're in your fullest posture. But when you engage it, start with 1% of engagement and slowly move to 2% and 3% of the abs that we're talking about now.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that you're not like, okay, now I'm going to be back bend. Let me do a sit up, you know, and then like, that's, that's also extreme recipe for disaster. So you just yeah. slowly bring, it's all about subtlety when it comes to that, but okay. So back bends form an extended spine. And usually what that means for most people is you have to understand which areas of your back are stiff. Everybody has different vertebrae that are stiff. So I do encourage kind of developing a bit of understanding, you know, self-awareness again. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of people in the yoga world are against chiropractors, certain chiropractors that are just forceful and just doing like full body adjustments can be really ridiculous. But the ones that are just isolating the areas that are stiff, they can provide you with a lot of information. I'm not saying you got to go every day or whatever like that. I just go every once in a while to try to find out, you know, things that I can't feel for myself because I certainly have blind spots like everybody else. And somebody else can help me find those blind spots. And somebody who is trained in the spine specifically can help me find those blind spots where I'm stiff in the spine. And then once they point it out, if they put two fingers on either side of the vertebra that's not moving, then in my yoga practice, I can actually try to isolate that and find that. Yes, your yoga teacher or, or physical therapist can also help you with that as well. But just an outside support can be very helpful. But ways in which you can do it without support was you have to take your own fingers, like say in bridge pose and palpate, which means feel which vertebra are sticking outward towards your fingers. Those are typically the stiff ones. And the ones that are inward that you can't feel as much, those are the hypermobile ones. And what you want to do is try to move what's stiff and don't move what's mobile. Because where you feel the pain will always be in the mobile area, the hypermobile area. And a lot of people, what they'll do to start is just stiffen the mobile area, which is fine. I, I understand that tactic. But if you mobilize what is stiff, you'll start to notice that it releases the pain area, the mobile area most of the time. And that's because it disperses the pressure mm-hmm. throughout the whole spine, at least more vertebra, right? So if you if you mobilize what is stiff, you'll you'll kind of get into the bigger picture of what's going on in your system and why there's pain in that area. But if you just, you know, let's say you have L4, L5 is hypermobile and you just tuck your tail, you kind of miss the fact that probably L3, 2, and 1 might be stiff, right? And so you never really kind of get at that. So you have to look and just say, well, it's like putting a bandaid on it because you're not actually looking at the cause or what participates in the symptoms that you're having or the sensation yeah, that you're having. Exactly. General rule of thumb though, so everybody has it. Whatever's mobile, usually above and below it is stiff. So if your L4, L5 are mobile, probably something in your hips are stiff. Or, you know, if the middle of your back, then <laughs> just go above and below that, that's probably stiff. And you can deliberately engage. And there's muscles on your back that allow you to deliberately move the stiff areas. You just might be a little bit asleep there. We all are. So so when you find it, don't think that you're you know, a weirdo, you're just like everybody else. The objective really in the spine is to engage the areas that are stiff. Eventually you can learn how to engage the opposing muscles, the abdominal muscles where the areas are mobile. I mean, I know this is a lot and it's uh, perfect. Very detailed. Yeah. People will do the research they need to complete what what we're talking about. This is how we learn, right? Like you realize that you don't know something like you're talking and maybe one of the listeners, like, I have no idea what he just said. Go on and look at what that means for you and your body and start to explore. And if you do know and you're like, oh, I haven't thought about it this way, then you have more. Like, this is how yeah. this is how we grow. Yeah. And we're also just, into, you know, on this in this format, just I'm just intellectualizing in these explanations. And when you get on the mat with me or somebody that really understands exactly. the body, we can 
put it into action so you can feel it. It's not just like a, you know, this intellectualization. It's, it's something that can be done uh, through action. I think it's about planting seeds for people to realize that they have blind spots and like, yes. oh, maybe they didn't even consider that it works this way. And like, it's more about the general idea. So then they seek the information. So then they seek a teacher like you that knows and that can support them if they are curious and if they have inquiry in that department. So anything Perfect. else you want to add before we finish? Like if there's one takeaway you'd like to leave listeners with today, what would that be? Oh man, I uh, just get curious, get curious about your body, you know, and uh, I would kick it back to something we haven't talked about, but you know, the yoga sutra that discusses attachment and avoidance, uh, where it says we attach to the things that we like and mm -hmm. are pleasurable and we avoid the things that we dislike or, you know, bring us discomfort and whatever. And then recognize that the yoga sutra is set up entirely for basically those two <laughs> things to endure the discomfort of the things we don't like. That's called tapas, right? So there's there's multiple key points in the Yoga Sutras that talks about enduring discomfort or the effort that comes with this practice. And so I don't mean pain or anything. I mean just discomfort mentally and emotionally. Mental. And certainly discomfort when it's uncomfortable to engage muscles that are weak. There's no doubt about that, you know, like to strengthen muscles that are weak. There's a lot of effort and discomfort, but to get curious in the areas that we avoid is a, a key takeaway and mm. to try to seek out within ourselves or recognize that there are things that we avoid. We like comfort. And so maybe you don't like anatomy or the names or Latin or whatever, you maybe don't like the visualization of a muscle or something. And just recognize that that's probably where your room for growth and potential really lies. And I'm not really a proponent of that everyone's got to learn anatomy if you want to, you know, get into your body, but just some level of developing slightly on the intellectual side will really help you sensationally, emotionally, and mentally in the long run. And it will open up your world to the potential of what you really have as a human being. And again, I, I'm not really someone that feels like you need to learn every name in a memorization format, but just a basic, you know, visual, see the body from what people have done when they dissect it. Just look at how muscle fibril directions are because that will help you understand how your body is designed to move. And you'll get a lot from just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I'll put all your information in the show notes, but in the meantime, where's the best place for people to find you? If they want to say hello, they want to study with you, tell us what's going on. Yeah, for sure. The two places I would suggest, Instagram, the Yogi Matt on Instagram, T-H-E-Y-O-G-I-M-A-T-T. -T. My name has two T's. Um, and then of course the same, theyogimat.com. If you want to start studying with me in any kind of way, shape or form, or you just want some free tutorials. I have a lot of free tutorials on theyogimat.com. Just click the free tab. You'll get video tutorials on how to do backbends and how to, you know, all the things that we talked about, shoulder movements and everything. There's how to avoid shoulder impingement and downward dog, how to do chaturanga in a way that is strong and light and all that stuff is on there for free. So you can go to theyogimat.com. In addition, there's the 200 and 300 hour online teacher trainings, which if you do 300, it makes you 500 hours certified. There's immersions. I do monthly immersions there where you get 12 classes with me. They're live streamed so you can practice with me live. Or in addition to that, you get lifetime access so you can practice anytime. We do a different topic every month based on what the community is wanting. And we, we just focus on, on various things from, you know, anatomy of back bends to hip opener, shoulder mobility to like the vinyasa practice to breath work meditation. We go through all the different aspects of yoga in, you know, each month has a, a choice and, and the community really helps me make those choices. So those are ways you can, you can Beautiful. get in touch. Thank you so much for your time today.
Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to share with you. I appreciate your questions. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very valuable episode for people that are curious about their bodies. So I'm cool. glad Thanks that so we much, got Erica. to talk. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't already done so, leave a review for this episode of the podcast in general on iTunes. It truly helps people find the podcast. And to say thank you, you'll get access to our premium membership for free for a full month. All you have to do is send me an email with a screenshot of your review and we'll get you all set up. My email is erica.villander at gmail.com. You'll find that in the show notes. If you are looking for the show notes, you'll have those at ericabelanger.com slash 148. Now, before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for the support in making this possible. And this includes all our premium members. Once again, thank you for listening. See you next Monday.